Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at PrattWhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at Dewhop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and we have a lot of airline news to sort through and figure out this week. Then there's the curious case of an all-premium leisure airline trying to start service from the Maldives, a group of islands in the Indian Ocean just south of India. I'm eager to fill you in on it, Scott McCartney. Hello, Ben. I'm eager to hear more about it. And I'm eager to talk to Mark Nasser, Air Canada's Executive Vice President for Marketing and Digital. He'll give us an update on the Canadian airline scene and marketing airline service. But first, Ben, there really is a lot of important news. Let's start with airlines suspending service to Tel Aviv which created real problems for visitors trying to evacuate after war broke out. As we record, U.S. airlines are adding extra flights and using larger aircraft to Athens, Greece, and governments from Europe and the U.S. are arranging charters from Israel into Athens. I've had friends stranded there who have gotten out through Amman, Jordan, and others through Europe. And if you're curious, I found it fascinating to look at air traffic in Israel on Flight Radar 24. I recommend it to the aviation geeks out there. Even last Friday, you could see some airlines continuing to operate, like Swiss, and of course, El Al, the national airline of Israel, which operated on the Sabbath last week for the first time so that reservists who were called up could get to Israel and people who want to get out can get out. LL reportedly has anti-missile systems installed on at least some of its aircraft. You can also see other interesting aircraft movement, such as a NATO flight I saw depart Tel Aviv on Flight Radar 24, and even a Brazilian Air Force cargo plane returning to Brazil. Hmm. First and foremost, air service needs to be safe, so flights clearly had to be suspended when rockets started flying. I'm glad to see airlines stepping up to find alternative ways to get people to safety. Speaking of airlines stepping up, Delta stepped up with an increase in earnings last week. Profits were up after a strong summer and robust international traffic, really showing the split in fortunes for the big network carriers and the smaller low-cost segment of the market. But Delta forecast its full-year earnings at the low end of its previous guidance because oil prices have jumped. So the market wasn't happy with that. Some interesting takeaways, Ben. Premium product sales were up 17% to more than $5 billion. Main cabin revenue was $6.6 billion. So that smaller real estate in the front of the airplane produces 75% as much revenue as the larger main cabin square footage in the back. Net income was $1.1 billion, and Delta said it had $791 million in revenue from its loyalty program, which means mostly sale of frequent flyer miles. That revenue essentially dropped straight to the bottom line, so as we've said before, most of the profit is coming from SkyMiles. Corporate travel was about 80% back, and CEO Ed Bastian said it was returning, quote, meaningfully, with more companies ordering a return to the office. However, President Glenn Howenstein also said the Hollywood and auto strikes were hurting Delta. Delta is the largest airline in both Los Angeles and in Detroit. United, American, and Alaska report this week. So what did you make of the Delta earnings, Ben? You pretty much nailed it, Scott. It didn't surprise me they did so well. Their strength in premium was interesting. 
and matches what United said last week about putting more premium seats on their plane, that's clearly the world the big airlines are focusing. People who will pay a little more for a nicer service, even if they're buying the ticket themselves, not that it's being bought by their company. And Delta's ahead of the curve on that. They can't really control fuel price. They can control their usage of fuel based on where they fly and pilot procedures to some extent. But it kind of surprised me that the street hit them on that when they said that was the reason for fourth quarter weakness to a sense. Mm -hmm. Overall, I don't think United and American are going to be as strong, but I think tonality-wise, they're going to talk about the same relative strengths that Delta did, and they will certainly try to spin their earnings on something they do well that investors can hitch to to feel good about buying their stock. Yeah, I do I do worry about the international situation because it's so important to Delta United and American right now. Um, but if we see an escalation of the war in Israel or we see terrorist attacks in Europe or elsewhere, um, you could easily see how people would pull back on international travel. Let's hope that doesn't happen. You're right about that, Scott. Going to that issue, it's a terrible situation there. And my heart goes out to everyone who's being hurt as part of that. And I hope it's resolved quickly. I worry about Lebanon getting into the fight and expanding it more than if people decide to put some hurt on Iran, who may be funding this, this could escalate into almost a World War III kind of thing. I don't think it's going to go that far, but I worry about it and worry about everyone who's there, everyone who has family or friends there, too. And I agree with you that transatlantic travel between now and until this is over, is likely to be affected. Even right now, Scott, how comfortable would you be flying to a place really close to Israel, even if you weren't going to Israel? You might still take the trip, but you'd think about it more. And then, like you said, if a religious building is bombed in Germany or Poland or something, then all of a sudden there's going to be a big run from that kind of travel. Yep. Yeah. Very tense situation. It is. Well, Scott, in brighter news, I listened in on a press conference this week for Beyond Air, a new airline in the Maldives. It's Beyond, B-E-O-N-D, missing a Y. And it is this way because one of the founders, that's his last name, B-E-O-N-D. <laughs> so it looks like a missing element, and customers are going to wonder, where's the Y? But that's why it is that way. But I'm not sure this airline is going to work. The company claims to be the first ever all-premium leisure airline. Now, they may be right since we've really only been using that term for about 18 months. So maybe that's it. But they stress even though they're flying A320s and A319s with all lie-flat seats, they stress not to call their cabins business class 
because they said we're not carrying business customers. We're carrying premium leisure customers. Another interesting thing is that they're flying to Dubai from Mali in the Maldives, but not to the main airport, to a new secondary airport that the airport authority in Dubai is trying to develop. I think that's interesting, and whether or not that will work and encourage more people to go to that airport. And then they showed sort of the future of beyond in their mind, flying to 60 cities in Europe, Asia, and even South Africa. 60? 60. And I'm sure many of these would be one or two days a week. But I think of those islands... And when I did some work with GoAir in Mumbai, we flew to Mali. And we had to be very careful about the times we arrived because from Mali, you get another plane or a ferry to one of the other islands. And the hotel infrastructure is big but not huge. So I just wonder whether that archipelago can support that much service on top of all the airlines flying to Mali now. It was an interesting press conference. Hmm. It had a lot of aspiration in it. Yeah. Well, Ben, first of all, they're not the first all-premium leisure airline. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I guess if you if you call it leisure, I mean, there's there's La Compagnie flying between New York and Paris. It's all uh, business class service. Um, we had Maxjet and EOS. They were all business class airlines that uh, that failed. Um, I guess you wouldn't say they're all leisure because they're certainly happy to have business travelers. So maybe that's how they sort of get around definitions here. But I think the point is there aren't all premium leisure airlines uh, in the world because um, that's not going to work. And so so we'll see. It's always fun to watch a new airline, see their views of what the market doesn't have today that they think the market demands. And while I'm not optimistic about Beyond Air, I'm still interested in following them and see what happens. Do they even get to 10 cities before something happens? Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to, to see if they ever get off the ground and if they could stay in the air for, uh, for at least a while. Two other significant stories this week, Ben. First, about 20,000 people complained to the FAA about attempts by other airlines to put JSX and other scheduled charter operators out of business. By operating as a scheduled charter carrier with only 30 seats on a plane, JSX first officers need only 250 hours minimum of experience in their logbook instead of 1,500 hours at airlines. And JSX can operate from private terminals without TSA screening. The FAA, prompted by big airlines, is looking into whether scheduled charter carriers are exploiting a loophole in pilot experience requirements and whether there's a security concern with passenger screening. And news from Boeing this week that 737 MAX output has fallen to the lowest level in two years. Production and deliveries slowed in September because of problems with suppliers, like misdrilled holes in fuselage sections. That sounds kind of bad. Boeing wants to build 38 737s a month. In September, it delivered only 15. Ryanair, for one, has had to make cuts in its winter schedule. Boeing delivered 27 jets overall in September. The 15 737s plus 10 787 Dreamliners and two 777s. Airbus delivered twice as many, 55 jets in September. 
I suspect the Boeing problems aren't all bad for airlines, especially low-cost carriers, which are seeing a slowdown in demand for cheap ticket travel. Less capacity leads to higher ticket prices. I also suspect that the FAA won't be swayed by 20,000 customers supporting JSX, no matter how loved the little carrier's service is. I would love to see some kind of accommodation for first officers flying jets with 30 seats or fewer. That's much better experience than touch and goes in a Cessna 172 or dragging a banner down the beach. The industry needs a path for pilots to earn money while they gain the experience. We used to have that at regional airlines when the requirement for first officers was 250 hours. Then Congress changed the rules without any attention to pilot training and the cost of pilot training and small jet service shrinking across the country. What do you think, Ben? Is JSX in trouble? Is Boeing in trouble? Well, let's talk about JSX first. I get annoyed when people say they're exploiting a loophole. It's not a loophole. It's a section in the Federal Aviation Regulations, Part 135, that defines scheduled charter service and lays out rules that the FAA thought made sense for that kind of service. So saying it's a loophole, what they're really saying is that when the FAA wrote Part 135, they weren't contemplating an airline like JSX. But I'm not sure they weren't, to be honest. And if JSX is providing service to places or with frequency that other airlines aren't and is creating an option for pilots to make money while they're building time to fly to a big airline, yes, be sure it's safe, but don't start with the view that you want to shut it down. Start with the view is, is anything wrong with Part 135? And let's look at it that way. That's my sense, Scott. Yeah, I agree on that. I, I, and, you know, who's being hurt here? Um, customers aren't being hurt here. It's, it's the big airlines that, be, that are being hurt here, I guess. Uh, and, you know, the competition we're supposed to support. And I'm not even sure pilots' unions are being hurt because it's bringing more pilots into the system who will, in just a couple of years, be flying for the big guys. Yeah, well, that's the the question of whether the pilots' union would rather uh, see the supply restricted so that wages go up. That's another issue for Airlines Confidential. Yeah, that's right. And on Boeing, I think it's interesting that they're having the kind of troubles they are. But it's been the case since the MAX crashed and was not flying for almost two years. They have struggled to get back to a production ability on the commercial side. Again, Boeing produces a lot of military equipment too. But on the commercial side, they've struggled to get back to a production rate that looks like it should be given what Airbus is doing. Airbus has publicly talked about what they call rate 75, which is produce 75 planes and deliver 75 every month. And they think about their assembly plants around the world and their ability to support that. And so Boeing's got a ways to go. They're a great company, but they're still scrambling and they need really strong leadership there. I hope they have it there, Scott. I'd love to have someone from Boeing. We had their historian on talking about the 747. It'd be great to get someone 
from the current management team talking about Boeing's plans. We'll work on that. Yes, we, we know people, and I think we can, we can make that happen. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P dot com. And we want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they're committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. Let's bring in Mark Nasser from Air Canada. I should note to listeners that we recorded this interview before Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Mark Nasser is Executive Vice President of Marketing and Digital at Air Canada and President of Air Canada's popular and innovative loyalty program, Aeroplan. Before Air Canada, he spent 10 years in various revenue management, marketing, and strategy roles at Continental, then United, after the merger of those two carriers. Mark, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, good day, Ben and Scott. Thanks for having me. So um, let's start off. Tell us how you got involved in the airline business. Um, I mentioned in the introduction your time at Continental and United, but before that, you started in the hotel business, right? That's right. So I've lived all around the world uh, and have had family all around the world. So there was always uh, travel that was core to my life. And usually the story I like to tell about why I got so interested in airlines and travel, uh, I used to go back to the Middle East uh, to visit my grandparents every summer. And of course, uh, my parents would fly in the front of the bus and I'd be in the back. And uh, that just irked me to no end, despite the fact that I was, I don't know, three feet tall. So uh, at some point, I started researching loyalty programs, and uh, over the course of uh, the year before the next summer's trip, got into it pretty deeply. Uh, and I still remember that following summer, uh, I boarded the aircraft, and much to my parents' surprise, I had upgraded my ticket, and I turned left uh, and sat a few rows ahead of them. So, you know, I, I like to tell that story, but uh, really, I've just always had a passion for travel and for service. That's a very funny story, too. I'm not sure how my parents would have reacted to that. <laughs> yeah, not, not particularly well if they're anything like mine, uh, <laughs> but uh, they appreciated the effort. Uh, yeah, I, I, started, uh, I started working in uh, hotels, actually, when I was 14, um, and I would spend the summers, you know, from 14 uh, all the way uh, through 20, uh, you know, working operational jobs. So I've been a cook bell person, you know, worked front desk, worked housekeeping, pretty much every operational job you can imagine in hotels, restaurants. Um, and then uh, when it came time to go to college, I picked a hotel school. Cornell University has a hospitality uh, management program. And then via lucky happenstance on a mileage run, I met a VP at Continental and uh, through that was able to, uh, lucky enough to get an internship at Continental, uh, which I did between my uh, junior and senior years in college. And was totally hooked on working in the airline industry from that point. Do you mind disclosing who you met so we can thank them? Uh, yeah, thank them or otherwise, as some of my colleagues have said. Uh, a fellow named Jim Summerford, uh, who ran uh, Continental's operations in uh, Europe and uh, Africa and the Middle East at the time. Yeah, and I know Jim. He was there when I worked there. He's a great guy. 
Uh, I'm very grateful to him. Well, Mark, give our listeners a rundown of air travel in Canada now. Air Canada faces its now familiar competitor, WestJet, plus some new entrants. What's the landscape for airlines like in Canada right now? Sure thing. Well, relative to population and demand, Canada pretty much has more new entrants and capacity in it than any other uh, established market. Um, And so if you look at the last few years, uh, a few ULCC-styled airlines have begun operations, as well as a small regional carrier porter that took some Embraer uh, E2s uh, and is now uh, spreading their wings on uh, mid-haul, longer-haul flying. You know, and then the the growth that's occurring with existing players. So it's a very competitive marketplace. And, you know, I would say certainly from our perspective, uh, unsustainably so. Uh, Canada does not lend itself uh, anywhere close to the ULCC model. In fact, if you look, so, you know, the country is very large, uh, you know, about um, 3,000 plus miles uh, coast to coast, a little larger than that, actually. 70% of the population lives within a very narrow corridor from uh, just uh, west of Toronto all the way to just north of Montreal and Quebec City. You know, so you've got uh, very small cities uh, and small airports, very, very highly seasonal. And because of our user pay model, very high costs, also very high taxes. So the idea of having ULCCs with high density 737s uh, that are able to have the kinds of demand and the you know, market and OD opportunities that exist in, let's say, European or American context, uh, that's just not uh, relevant as much to Canada. Um, And then right away, even on a free ticket, you're starting at, you know, $50 to $100 in round trip costs just for the user pay components and the taxes and fees and all of that. Um, You know, so uh, uh, the Canadian landscape right now, domestic uh, and to a certain extent transborder is very competitive. Well, that's why the U.S. ULCCs rarely fly into Canada, but fly close to Canada. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we've had, um, you know, several, I'd say, you know, Allegiant in particular, to a certain extent, Spirit and Frontier. Uh, they all have, um, you know, border airports of towns that probably wouldn't receive as much service uh, if it wasn't for major Canadian cities right on top. You know, we also have... Uh, you know, 80 to 90 percent of our population living within about 60 miles of the border. Um, and so uh, there's uh, there's some of that flying that occurs. And, and Air Canada, how did it fare through the pandemic? And, and my recollection is it was pretty rough. And what's been the, the post pandemic last couple of years like for the airline? So we were lucky that going into the pandemic, we had one of the strongest balance sheets out there globally for a network carrier. And, uh, you know, thank goodness we did because Canada uh, had some of the more draconian measures. We were pretty much locked down in one way or another until April uh, 2022. And, you know, uh, as things started to open back up, they did so tentatively and, you know, with a lot of restrictions kind of preceding it. In fact, actually, for most of the pandemic, even domestic travel was very difficult because our Atlantic provinces, our northern territories were in their own bubbles, and there was a very different restrictions from province to province. So the pandemic was extraordinarily difficult. Uh, at its worst point, we were down about 98% in terms of traffic. Um, so we were operating literally, you know, mandatory business travel, you know, folks that needed to fly for medical purposes, uh, you know, kind of remote towns into major cities for for treatments and cargo. And uh, for, for, for quite a while, that was our business. But um, uh, luckily, you know, between our balance sheet strength going into it, you know, tremendous sacrifice from our employees, uh, the whole team rallying together, uh, we were able to, uh, you know, keep things uh, in a reasonably, uh, you know, relevant position. And then, of course, as we came out of the pandemic, uh, the biggest challenge we had was uh, managing and serving through all of the demand that materialized quite quickly, you know, as uh, obviously people wanted to travel. And we're still now working to bring back our capacity to 2019 levels. We're actually not there yet from a capacity perspective. Um, and that, that, that's a key focus to, you know, get to those levels and, of course, grow beyond them. 
Well, the U.S. airlines have faced something similar in that they found it was much easier to shrink than to grow back quickly. Yeah, and I would say for us, uh, shrinking was, um, you know, the difficult part about it was obviously the impact to our employees, um, and that was extraordinarily difficult. But the uh, operational challenges of shrinking versus growing. And, you know, the other thing, and I can't emphasize this enough, because of Canada's user pay model, what happened during the pandemic was our air traffic control provider, Nav Canada, our large airports took on an enormous amount of debt because uh, along with all the restrictions and flights being cut, uh, so was their revenue stream. And these are not organizations that are funded uh, federally or provincially uh, like they are in most air- in most places in the world, even in the United States. Um, and so, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we were even slower because it happened almost overnight. You know, it went from lockdown and restrictions to things opening quite quickly. And then you had all of these parts of the ecosystem that had atrophied. They had, you know, um, to survive, they had um, canceled, you know, capital investment plans. They had furloughed people, a lot of highly skilled jobs that take a long time to recover. So these are themes you see in other places in the world, but they were particularly severe in Canada. And now, you know, there's going to be several years, especially from an airport infrastructure perspective, uh, to recover. Wow. Well, let's talk about business travel for a minute. Are you still way below pre-pandemic levels in Canada? And do terms like premium leisure and blended travel resonate up there? I'd say we're seeing a business recovery very similar to the commentary you would hear within the United States you know, which is corporate large managed business is still down in terms of traffic, you know, call it about 75, 70% recovered. Um, but, you know, with yields being higher, the revenue uh, recovery is obviously, um, you know, excelling that. On the small and medium sized uh, business front, um, stronger recovery, which is very interesting because usually small and medium sized business watches uh, expenses, you know, even more closely than large enterprise customers. So they're clearly seeing the opportunities and the benefits that come from travel. As it relates to your other questions, yes, absolutely. Look, we have a premium product. We're very proud. We believe we have, you know, the strongest product in North America, the strongest product over the Atlantic. And we've seen a remarkable uh, level of interest in our premium experiences. You know, the other thing that's very interesting, and we've, we've done a lot of analysis on this recently, when a customer samples a premium product, they're much more likely going forward to purchase premium products. Um, And so there's a relationship where if we can bring them on via a premium credit card, let's say in the loyalty program, they'll then typically buy higher fare tickets or premium cabins, or it works the other way where you might've had a traveler that was typically an economy traveler that we can get, you know, to sample maybe on their first splurge, you know, travel revenge type trip, premium economy or business class. And from that point onwards, we see that they're more likely between six and 11 times more likely, actually, depending on, you know, their archetype and whether they're a new customer or not, um, to purchase premium products going forward. Only takes one taste of the bay, right? (laughs) Certainly that was the case uh, for a young Mark uh, once I had the first upgrade many, many years ago. Well, so that's interesting. Do you, do you, do you try and get them hooked somehow? Uh, uh, Does a free upgrade turn into a, a, customer who who will keep buying? Absolutely. So the, our opportunity to provide you know, incentives and freebies, trial, if you will, uh, uh-huh. to get that behavior going really exists in the loyalty program. Um, you know, so on the, on the airline side, especially coming out of the pandemic, you know, we were a little bit more aggressive in the beginning with premium uh, pricing because uh, the corporate demand wasn't there. But you know, what we found you know, very quickly was uh, you know, there was a desire in the marketplace to purchase those tickets. And, you know, uh, that obviously affected how we, you know, approached pricing. But on the loyalty program, um, you know, and, and really focusing on our premium credit card portfolio, uh, which used to be a very small part of our business, has actually grown, uh, it's more than doubled in terms of the overall share of the loyalty program, you know, to give people the taste of the lounge upgrades, you know, priority airport services, that kind of thing. Hmm. So interesting. 
Um, the Canadian wildfires probably caused a lot of havoc for Air Canada this summer. What, what was summer like for you? So interestingly, and thankfully, I guess, we had less impact this summer than our uh, neighbors south of the border had from the wildfire situation. Actually, we, we had more impact last year when the wildfires uh, were more pronounced in the west uh, than in the east. And that certainly affected our operations in Vancouver and uh, Calgary, the smoke, et cetera. Uh, this year, given the geographies of the wildfires vis-a-vis you know, Toronto, Montreal, the major hubs, um, I think there was a little bit more of an impact in the U.S. seaboard, uh, you know, the Northeast and, and the Midwest. Um, but of course, you know, we have major operations into those airports and, you know, that had its impact. I think the broader theme and the thing we really focus on internally is, you know, the relationship between, you know, a changing climate for whatever reasons and, you know, these increased wildfires, increased extreme temperatures and the resiliency we need to build into our business you know, in terms of staffing, equipment, uh, regular operations capabilities, because, you know, we see a future where whether it's a wildfire or a tsunami or a hurricane or whatever, there's going to be more of these impactful events. Well, the summer in the U.S. was really dominated by strong international travel. But as we've gone into the fall, travel seems weaker, and most U.S. airlines have put out ominous kind of warnings about the fall. Are you seeing those same kinds of shapes in Canada? First off, we have a bit of a fundamentally different pattern because in Canada, our typical you know peak is Q3 and late summer. And the U.S., you know, it's more of an early summer, you know, kind of kicks off May going through till the 4th of July, you know. And so the good thing is because of our network and our U.S. presence and our U.S. partnerships, we've uh, been able to extend our summer to start with the U.S. and then kind of end with the Canadian peak. And, uh, you know, we're still happy with what we're seeing. And, uh, you know, we're still quite confident. And, you know, Europe, I think it's very well documented that it was a strong Europe. And we certainly talked you know, from a Q2 perspective around uh, what we saw in May and June. So we haven't uh, released Q3 yet, um, you know, but uh, the, the North Atlantic is a tremendous market for us. And, you know, we're one of the principal players uh, there. And yeah, we, we you know, we certainly uh, like what we are seeing now. So you've mentioned Aeroplan uh, in, a, in a couple of ways. It's really unique among frequent flyer programs, I think. It was spun off and sold back some 20 years ago, then bought back by Air Canada. Its points are kind of a ubiquitous currency, um, much more than we see in this country. Why did Air Canada decide to bring it back in-house? And um, what are you doing with with the program right now? Yeah, so there was two fundamental reasons as we were looking at this in kind of 2015, 2016. The first was, we had lost control over our relationship with the customer because when we spun out Aeroplan, what went along with that was our marketing platform, our data, our communications capabilities. So we didn't just spin out a loyalty program. We effectively spun out a marketing department other than, you know, brand, which you know the higher level stuff that we always had internally. And, you know, we kind of realized this earlier in the decade and had started to build that capability internally. But uh, it's harder to organically build that um, when you have this big, powerful data asset and, you know, relationship sitting out there separately from you. So that was the first reason. Uh, The second reason was if you looked back then at the income uh, disparity between the major U.S. carriers, the top performing ones, at least network carriers and Air Canada, two thirds of the difference about an income performance was due to the fact that we didn't have the economics that the loyalty program generates. And so, you know, we were looking at our multiples and we said, well, fundamentally, we need to be able to bridge this gap if we're going to, you know, achieve top U.S. network carrier levels, you know, multiple levels in terms of valuation. And so we tried to engage uh, with the entity that we had spun out, AMIA, um, a discussion around, you know, what it would look like to solve these issues, give us enough control over the program, participate much more uh, holistically in the economics Ultimately, we weren't able to come to an agreement with them. So we said, okay, well, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a bit risky. It's going to, you know, be a big investment. But you know what? This is important enough. We're very long-term focused. We're going to just start our own loyalty program 
you know, and we're, we're confident we will win back most of the members, uh, you know, in 2020 when the deal uh, with AMIA, the contract, was going to expire. Uh, so we announced that to the market. Very, very positive reaction from the market. Um, you know, questions and concerns from customers, but also a lot of customers reached out talking about how they wanted a new and better experience. And so we're off on our merry way doing that. Um, and eventually, uh, AMIA approached us and said, you know, the, principally the banks, too, that issue the AMIA uh, credit cards and said, you know what? Look, there's going to be a lot of disruption here. What if we can put together a deal where we'll sell you Aeroplan back? Um, and uh, we were ultimately able to come to terms uh, and we, we bought it back. But we had spent two years designing a program that we thought would be a lot better. So we said, OK, we'll, we'll buy it. We'll bring it back in house so that there's a smooth transition. All the points come over, all the memberships come over for our customers, but we will relaunch it with new technology and a whole bunch of new program features and partners on the basis of that new program we designed. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, and we, we finally relaunched in November, 2020. Well, Mark, that's fascinating. Loyalty programs, as you know, are really important to big airlines. And during the pandemic, as you know, many airlines in the U.S. even use them as collateral for new loans to prop up balance sheets that weren't as strong as yours. What do you see as the future of these kind of programs? And is it possible, if you don't mind me asking, to create a loyalty program that really matters to someone who only travels occasionally? So I'll start with your the second part of your question, Ben, because that was the core of our drive in redesigning Aeroplan. So very high-level stats. 60% of Canadians travel by air, 40% don't. We're not too concerned with the 40% that don't, we focus on the 60% that do. Of that 60%, um, 93% of them are traveling three times a year or less, principally once or twice a year. Um, and only 7% of them are traveling four times a year or more. Aeroplan already uh, was extremely popular and served very well that 7%. The real opportunity was in the 93%, those that traveled you know, once, to three times every kind of 18 months or so. Um, and so we set about to design a program that could have um, a lot of relevance in the everyday lives of that 93%, um, but also something that when they did go to, uh, you know, consider air travel, travel, Air Canada would be the you know, first airline in the consideration set. And there was even distribution channel implications to kind of this mindset. Um, and so I'd say there, there are kind of three key parts to our strategy to make that happen. And, and it's, it's borne out in reality quite well. The first is to establish these everyday partnerships with the most loved brands. In Canada, we are uh, the loyalty play or a principal part of the loyalty play for Uber, for Uber Eats, for Starbucks, for LCBO, which is the world's largest retailer of beverage alcohol, um, you know, for coast to coast petrol stations and uh, electric charging stations, et cetera. And so the first part of that is, you know, you can participate in Aeroplan in your everyday life, even if you're an infrequent traveler. The second part was enabling the family dynamic. So allowing families uh, and close friends to share benefits and share points. You know, very simple example, a family of four that goes to Europe once a year, if they can pool their points after one trip, they will typically have enough points for something meaningful, like maybe a ticket to Florida or something like that. And so, you know, it makes it real. Uh, even the airline side of it starts to have a lot of benefit, even if you're infrequent. And then the last thing was micro redemptions. So having redemptions for much cheaper price points, both with our partner network, like you can get Starbucks stars, you can get Uber rides or Uber eats meals with your points. Um, but you can also get Wi-Fi on board Air Canada flights or a variety of other things that start as low as a thousand points. And we brought these three things together and we were able to, we've actually more than doubled now the size of Aeroplan and almost all of that growth is from those infrequent travelers. And then of course, once they're in the ecosystem, 
being able to, for example, get them to acquire a credit card, which is a real profit center for us, is significantly easier. So, Mark, Air Canada recently placed an order for 18 more 787-10 Dreamliners as part of the long-haul international fleet renewal. But you also canceled some 777 freighters. Tell us about the fleet plan and the international expansion. Um, I, I, I know the population of Canada changed considerably with, with immigration, much more diverse. And does the fleet plan reflect that somehow? Sure thing. So we're, we're very excited. We ordered um, the 787-10s to complement our fleet of Dash 9s and Dash 8s that we have today. You know, in addition, we have um, A321 XLRs coming. And if you look at the next, you know, the, all those aircraft will be delivered about the next four or five years over the course of that period. Um, it's going to, uh, first of all, allow us to be a lot more efficient because some of that will be replacement. Of course, it will open up new growth opportunities, markets that, um, you know, before we couldn't necessarily fly to or uh, markets that we're flying to seasonally that we can extend to be year round. Um, what's really interesting, so Canada um, is growing very quickly, almost all on the basis of immigration. In fact, just year over year, there's about a million more people in Canada, and that's on the base of what used to be 39 to 40 million people. That's a very significant growth. I mean, if you think about that in, in, in U.S. terms, you know, there'd be a growth of kind of seven, eight million people. I live in Toronto, the largest city in the country. Just about half, 51% of people in Toronto were not born in Toronto. They were born outside. And Canadians have passports at a much higher rate than Americans have a passport. And they, you know, the, the kind of assimilation uh, into Canadian culture is a little, little bit different from the U.S., where people tend to uh, maintain closer ties to the home country, the old country, uh, you know, than, than might be the case in, in certain immigrant populations in the U.S., so all of those things lead to a lot more demand for international travel. And that's a big piece of the equation, the principal piece. There's also our growing Six Freedom franchise. So uh, using Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver as hubs to connect, you know, principally, you know, Europeans into, to and from America and, you know, also to Asia and Australia. Well, Mark, this has been a fascinating discussion I really appreciate uh, your time and your insights, and I know our listeners will uh, as well. Thanks for being with us, and uh, we look forward to uh, following Air Canada's uh, progress and growth uh, over the coming years. Great. Thank you so much uh, for having us uh, on board today. Thank you, Mark. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration provided by the archive.net, celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history, and you're welcome aboard the archive.net. Thanks again to Mark for some really interesting insights on loyalty programs and how Canada has recovered from the pandemic. Ben, some interesting questions from listeners this week, some directed at me, so let's dig in. Graham from Minneapolis has a question prompted by our interview with John Heimlich last week. Graham says, hello, I've been listening to your show for a long time and really enjoyed hearing John Heimlich last week. It got me wondering why airlines don't hire more economists. With people spending years studying causal inference, market structures, mechanism design, etc., wouldn't these researchers be a prime source of analysts for airlines? In the past few years, Amazon has hired more than 150 economists for problems of a similar nature, making them one of the largest employers of economists behind the Federal Reserve. What would be the pros and cons of an airline following a similar strategy? Ben, airlines employ armies of financial analysts. What about economists? Well, first, Scott, I promise that Graham from Minneapolis is not one of my students. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> no, I think it's a great question, Graham. And airlines have hired economists, but usually when they need help with the government, for example, in mergers and things like that, they will hire economists to help make their case around things. Could an economist help an airline 
better predict travel trends or even improve the process of deploying where airplanes go? Maybe what I think airlines have done a good job in is bringing people with an economic background into those kinds of areas. So I wouldn't be opposed to airlines hiring more economists, but I don't know exactly what they do once they walked in to (laughs) Delta or United beyond what those airlines are doing. I will tell you one funny story, which I may have told before on the show. In 2012 or 13, when I was at Spirit, the NPR show Planet Money came down to do a feature of our airline. And they spent the day at the airport talking to customers. As they got off planes, they would say, why'd you fly Spirit? And they'd say, because it was cheap, right? And then toward the end of the day, we met in my office. There were two of them. And I gave them sort of a summary overview of the business model. One of them said, this sounds like an airline designed by an economist. And I got really proud until the second one said, yeah, but don't you know everyone hates economists? (laughs) (laughs) So, Graham, that may be part of the problem, too. Here's a question for you, Scott. Colin from Boston asks, I know this is a basic question, but how can it be legal for airlines to increase fares during holidays, especially over Thanksgiving. I fly to Chicago around six times a year, and the round-trip price is usually between $250 and $300. During Thanksgiving, it increases to $500 or $600. Aren't there laws to prevent price gouging? Well, Colin, there are laws to prevent price gouging, but price gouging is defined as taking advantage of an emergency or a disaster. So price gouging laws protect consumers when trying to buy plywood before hurricanes or air tickets to evacuate when you're in the path of a storm. It's actually trickier than that for airline passengers because most price gouging laws are state laws and airlines are only subject to federal jurisdiction. But the point is, Thanksgiving isn't usually considered an emergency or a disaster, though there have been a few epic catastrophes in my family at Thanksgiving. This is simply a case of supply and demand. Airlines can only increase capacity so much for the holidays. Demand is much higher, so prices go up, way up. Baseball tickets cost more in the playoffs than a Tuesday in April. More people want those seats. Important new drugs are incredibly expensive because people will pay to get them. The economy isn't first come, first served. If you have a hot seller, you can command a higher price. Great answer, Scott. Also, there's potentially good news over time on this issue in that because of what the industry calls blended travel, traveling for leisure, but doing business when you're on. What we've seen in the last few years is a spreading out of demand over the holidays. Mm -hmm. Years ago, a huge percentage of Thanksgiving travel left on Wednesday, came back on Sunday, and the fares were very high for those days. Now, if you look at Syrian data, you see people travel almost a week in advance and every day up to Thanksgiving and often stay longer because they can work from home. That suggests that if you can be flexible on the days you actually travel, 
you might get from Boston to Chicago for the rate you want to pay. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So Ben, Scott in New Hampshire is a Newark-based pilot who is a longtime listener, and he had some interesting observations for us. He notes the new Terminal A is, quote, very nice, good food selection, better aesthetics, and more comfortable, quote. But the air train situation, he says, is, quote, a silly self-error. There is no efficient way to use the air train to get from Terminal A to C. We talked about this before. Scott says, your best bet is to use the bus that connects the two. It leaves from near gates A28 and C71. It takes somewhere between 8 to 12 minutes and keeps you inside the security apparatus, meaning you don't have to go through TSA screening again. So we have talked about Terminal A, (laughs) both its hamburgers and its uh, lack of of train connections, Um, and that's a really good tip about the bus. Scott has a few other things to fire at us. We mentioned the FAA's plan to move Newark airspace control to the Philadelphia TRACON from the New York TRACON. That's terminal area control. The New York TRACON is woefully understaffed. Scott says he is a friend who has worked New York Approach and Tower for 20 years, who says coordination between the three New York area airports requires rapid fire response and you need controllers next to each other in the same room within shouting distance rather than picking up a phone to call another facility. That seems like a good point, but you also need controllers, period. And the New York facility is notorious for running out new hires, according to the Inspector General's report. It's a bad situation in need of a solution, and it would seem these days a solid continuous communications link would be a solvable problem. Scott also says directly to me, Scott, you are straight up wrong about the 1,500-hour rule. While quality of hours do matter, pilots with less have no business flying mainline equipment. There are hundreds of passengers in the back and hundreds of thousands of pounds to account for, all at speed, not the place for low-time pilots who haven't had the chance to scare themselves. I would love to get you into a simulator with the respective levels of pilot experience and put them through the paces. I wonder what your opinion would be after. Scott, I have no doubt that for the most part, a 1,500-hour pilot is more skilled than a 215-hour pilot. I was certainly a better private pilot at 1,000 hours than 250 hours. And I might even agree with you about 1,500 hours for, quote, mainline, as you said, with hundreds of passengers. If there is a provision for lower minimum experience for regional airline pilots and maybe Part 135 scheduled charter pilots, as we talked about before, in the right seat of small jets with fewer than 100 seats. But that's not really the point. We all flew quite safely for decades with 1,500-hour minimum in the left seat and 250-hour minimum in the right seat at mainline carriers. And by the way, there's a lot more safety automatically built into today's jets than in the past. My problem with the 1,500-hour rule is that it's not based on a lick of research or study. It's arbitrary. Is it the right safety level? We have no idea. If you want absolute safety, stay on the ground. There is always some level of risk we are willing to accept in flying, or just about any other walk of life. We could save a lot of lives on the highway, lowering the speed limit to 30 miles an hour. Or maybe it should be 40 miles an hour. Who knows? But we accept the risk and have speed limits at 60 and 65 and 70 and 75, depending on the highway. Is it less safe to have a 250-hour pilot paired with a 1,500-hour pilot? We don't know. Would we get the same safety level if we required a specific curriculum for training rather than letting every student pick up hours at any old way at Joe's Flying Ranch? Maybe certified flight schools would give us better pilots with fewer hours. I applaud your simulator idea, Scott. Love to do it, but make it real. Make it a real study. Pair experienced captains with new hires 
and see at what experience level you get different results. Where's the drop-off? 1,500 hours? 1,000 hours? 500 hours? That's really what we need, not Congress making up rules arbitrarily. It's an important issue. It's huge for the industry. It's huge for travelers, and it's an important debate, Ben. We would love to hear more. So thanks very much, Scott. Really well said. And Scott, I like the intent of your note also. We want safe pilots. I'm going to say something that will probably annoy pilots out there in some way. But when we've had in the last two years, people come to our house to fix something like a plumber or an electrician. In almost every case in the last two years, two people show up, someone who knows how to do the job and someone learning how to do the job. And that works. And in that case, you know that person watching the senior electrician or plumber someday will be on their own and training other people. That idea of an apprentice-based system worked for decades in flying. And I don't accept that the FAA says it's unsafe. And the reason I say that is no other country imposed the 1,500-hour rule. And every day we have first officers with 250 hours or close landing in U.S. airports with a seasoned pilot coming from Europe, Asia, Latin America, and Canada. And we let them land in our airports, operate at our airports. So if it were unsafe, why do we let that happen? Scott McCartney, you nailed it. We need a good study, not numbers pulled from you know where. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, Scott, here's another one aimed at you. Of course. <laughs> John in Cincinnati writes, Hello, Ben and Scott. Love the show. I've been thinking about Scott's excellent and passionate description of the need for a Manhattan Project-like effort to fix aviation's biggest issues. I agree wholeheartedly as I am sure many others do in our industry. But after nodding in agreement and then briefly pondering the idea with furrowed brow, we all got some more coffee and went back to work. So I have to ask the obvious but difficult questions. When, Scott, if not now? And who, Scott, so, Scott, it's been over a month since your proposal, and I haven't seen anyone run with it. So I nominate you, Scott McCartney, in case that wasn't clear. Please invite representatives from different corners of our industry and start this Aviation Manhattan Project. It'll be hard for the Secretary and Congress to ignore the collective findings and recommendation of such an esteemed panel. Please, Scott, no one else will. Thanks, John, for the interesting comments. Scott, I think the new FAA nominee, Mike Whitaker, showed good understanding of just how big and important these are at his first confirmation hearing. I think Mike might agree with you. I'm hoping he'll attack these problems and solve them somehow. Maybe a Mike-Scott McCartney partnership <laughs> is what we really need. Well, Ben, I, I would love that, and I would love to see the idea get more traction. I'd love to start nominating people for the Aviation Manhattan Project. I like that name, by the way. Thanks very much, John. 
There are so many smart professionals in this business who would love the opportunity to make a real difference. But Washington has to show some interest in this first. I was heartened that Steve Dixon, the former FAA administrator, thought it was a good idea. I really hope interest builds. More than anything, we just need to find a way, some way, to solve the staffing and technology shortfalls. As they say, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. I fear we continue to dig a deeper hole. So I'll keep talking about it. When the time is right, I would love to help pull people together and be involved. But I think more than anything, all of us talking about it will help raise the issue, spread the idea, and, uh, and maybe somehow, some way, get Washington involved. Well, that's it for another episode of Airlines Confidential. We'll be back next week with more. And thanks again to Martin Nasser for educating us all about our neighbor to the north. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.